Hello and welcome back to Take Orally. Uh, once again, recording from Annie's Burger Shack in the Lace Market, Nottingham. Uh, and once again, I am joined by Canal Go Hill. Dr. Thomas, it's a pleasure to be here with you once again. Hello, Canal. It's a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. Welcome back. Uh, this is um, Adverse Drug Reactions Part 2. Part 2. And uh, in the first part, we talked a bit about what adverse drug reactions were, and That's we talked right. about the ABC, mm-hmm. uh, so augmented um, bizarre chronic. Correct. And so in this episode, we're going to talk about the DEF yes. types of uh, adverse because drug that's reactions. that's the alphabet. That is the alphabet. I work in a and I'm a doctor. I like alphabet. A yes. to E assessment and all that's of that. Way. Yeah, we love alphabets. Cool. So, um, once again, um, any information is correct at the time of recording of this. Uh, all of our guidelines, if you mention them, are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust and other trust guidelines may vary. Uh, and any of our views um, are the speaker's own. Cool. So, uh, shall we talk about uh, type D adverse drug reactions then? Type D. So, yeah, type D, again, we, we said, we mentioned briefly in the last podcast, type C through F are all relatively new classes. So, these are situations that are considerably more rare than our type A. I always want everybody to remember type A is the most common. So, when we're talking about D, type D, we're talking about delayed. So, type D meaning a delayed response an adverse drug reaction and it's a bit of an odd one so typically type d covers our carcinogenic and our teratinogenic adverse drug reactions okay so very specific circumstances there's particular drugs you have to keep an eye out for these ones so our most famous example and probably the reason that the type d um type d adverse drug reaction was created or acknowledged is thalidomide. So we all know thalidomide, marketed years and years and years ago as an antiemetic for pregnant ladies, a very effective antiemetic, but unfortunately what we found was that there was awful birth defects that were coming up in the offspring of the ladies that were taking it. Now, that was all found to be because thalidomide, one of the enantiomers of thalidomide, was found to be teratinogenic, so it caused limb problems and developmental abnormalities in the unborn fetus. So that is our most classic example of um, a type D drug reaction, and to the point where that was such a significant reaction that thalidomide is no longer used for that indication. And this happens often with these drugs, but there are particular circumstances where we still do use the drugs under very particular circumstances. So let's talk about some drugs that we still use in therapeutic practice that have the potential to cause this. Yeah. So the one that is the biggest one to consider that we use in clinical practice now is sodium valproate. Uh-huh. So sodium valproate, an anti-epileptic drug, a drug also used for bipolar disorder, so semi-sodium valproate, um, very, very incredibly effective drug for epilepsy. It is, it is one of the best drugs around for stopping seizures. It's got multiple mechanisms of action. It's got proven efficacy over years. Also very, very good efficacy for bipolar disorder as well. So this is a drug that typically we used to say could be used very safely and was used as a mainstay of tonic-clonic seizures, of absence seizures, even of complex po- um, partial seizures and focal seizures. What we've observed over time as a delayed adverse drug reaction, as we call it, is it's teratinogenic. 
So when we give it to ladies of childbearing potential that get pregnant, it has this teratinogenic um, profile and it can cause spina bifida and other abnormalities within the fetus. So in this case, this adverse drug reaction isn't actually noticed. It's not necessarily even an adverse drug reaction to the patient at that point. It's an adverse drug reaction much later on once they've had a baby. Nine months down the line. Nine months down the line in this case. Now, remember going back to what we said our definition was of that drug. A noxious or unwarranted consequence of a therapeutic dose of a drug for a legitimate indication. In this case, that fulfills all of that criteria. This yeah. is a noxious or unwarranted, unwanted consequence of taking that drug. And that, in this case, is a teratinogenic type situation. Another couple of examples of this. So there is a drug called Codanthroma, which is a very old fashioned laxative drug. So this is a drug that we don't use in practice real realistically at all anymore, which is a stimulant drug called Dantron, and it's an osmotic laxative called, called Polyaxima. Now, a combination of these drugs, again, was found to be carcinogenic over time. If you took them over a long period of time, um, they were carcinogenic and potentially would cause all various different cancers. I think it was mainly GI-type cancers that caused it. So in this case, delayed, you wouldn't see it. You would see it years and years and years after you've even discontinued taking the drug, and you might well have a predisposition to particular types of cancer. Another quite famous example of this delayed onset is a drug called diethylstilbestrol which is a hormonal therapy, so it's an estrogen receptor agonist. Back in the 60s, 70s, even 80s, very popular drug for, um, well, we used it for contraception. We used it for prevention of uh, miscarriage in pregnancy and a few other indications as well. Now, it had an incredibly I wouldn't say odd, but it had a very niche side effect in that it was found over time, and it was proven, there was, an, there was a very good article in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that ladies that were taking this drug whilst they were pregnant, um, female offspring of that pregnant lady, they would be in a, at a very high risk of developing cervical cancers. Okay, and so it's not the, the pregnant lady, no, it, it was her female offspring. Absolutely, and it can't be, a, well male offspring obviously are not going to develop a cervical cancer, no. but the female offspring were, were much, much, much higher likelihood of developing these cervical cancers and things, things in, in relation to that. So it's a very similar consequence to a certain extent to the sodium valproate, but it's even more delayed. Because you've got to be that growing because up. Absolutely, and, yeah. you have to hit, that child would have to hit puberty before they would even necessarily develop those symptoms and that, um, those symptoms and that yeah. particular condition. So to be honest, to be honest, I consider it a triumph of science that we even managed to figure that out over time. That is some incredible detective work. Absolutely. To go back and spot that out, mm -hmm. to spot that out. Whoever spot, spotted that trend, well done, sir. Correct. Or lady. Absolutely. So again, going back to our themes of how do we manage this, it could, to a certain extent, and, and this, back in the day, we would have considered this bizarre, 
but it isn't bizarre because now we have the evidence that it's predictable yeah. to a certain extent. So in this case now, sodium valproate, we're not using this drug long-term in women of childbearing age. And most students who are doing an OSCE or revising for exams will tell you, yes, if, if you are starting sodium valproate, what's one of the things you need to counsel your patient is, if they're female, is do not get pregnant, you, what is your contraception? Correct. Are you intending to have children? You know, and, That's and right. that needs to be part of the counselling session that you do. Absolutely. So it's now understanding we have this evidence and making informed, logical choices about starting these therapies. And quite often when we, de when we detect these kind of side effects, the, the marketing authorization is pulled. Diethylstilbestrol now is not used in clinical practice because of these problems. Thalidomide is not used in clinical practice because of these side effects again. So often actually these have quite catastrophic consequences that can mean that we just don't use these drugs at all ever again. So quite a niche, a very, very niche kind of um, situation, but one that we have to be very careful of. And in a previous podcast, uh, part of our Unblinding Research series uh, on medication trials, we talked about the stages of clinical trials and how even when on license a drug is under continuous monitoring. Pharmacovigilance. And this for, well, that's, a, that's an amazing word. Pharmacovigilance. 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 And this obviously falls under that, doesn't it? That we're constantly right. spotting and you never know, you know, one day paracetamol might be mm. deemed something, you know, but we're constantly watching. And this will probably, so in, on that theme, this is probably a good, good time to touch on this. So, when we talk about these adverse drug reactions, all of them, and you've just alluded to it there, this is one that could have happened 30, 40, 50 years after that initial drug was taken. How do we determine that this, uh, this side effect was attributable to that drug? And the key thing there is that it's all through reporting. So you might you might be aware of something called yellow card reporting. Absolutely, and again, we we'll mentioned this in the podcast. It's in the BNF, and, you yep. can, and it is an app as well. And you know, That's I right. love an app. Yep. It's partly it's an app as well. I mean, I was going to say, how do we go about reporting adverse drug reactions? But I mean, we've reached That's it. Right. We've we'll reached a natural it just, point it just there now. Natural. Yeah. So remember, yellow card reporting. So we have particular drugs that are new drugs that are in there. Um, uh, I can't remember if it's phase three, phase three, or phase four. Um, clinical trial where they're actually an, an active drug on the market, they're able to be used, but any side effect that your patient experiences needs to be reported via the yellow card. It's incredibly important and the, the, and the concepts behind thalidomide and sodium valproate contextualize how important it is that you report those things. But even drugs that have been in use from time immemorial, as we say, incredibly important to you don't necessarily have to report well-known common effects so nausea vomiting these are very common things but your very odd consequences your neutropenias or your things that are very strange but a patient is on this particular drug it's really important that we actually report that because we might well find a trend and you might end up with a New England Journal of Medicine article saying that this drug causes this and actually it should be pulled from the market there's, there's lots of examples of that um, Rothacoxib was one of the COX-2 inhibitors that was found to be killing people left right and center as a delayed adverse drug reaction because it was causing MIs and cardiovascular disease and that had its marketing authorization pulled so really, really important that we're doing that. Equally, equally in saying that, 
is sometimes you have to take adverse drug reaction reporting with a pinch of salt. So when we look at our side effects associated with any particular drug, so I'll give you an example here. On Dancidrol, which is a drug we use lots and lots of in ED. I give it every time I get morphine. Yep, absolutely. So it's it's a great drug. It's a great. You're not, if you're not nauseated before morphine, you'll be nauseated after it. That's right. Incredibly effective anti-emetic. I prescribe a lot of it as well for various different various different um, reasons. Well, we give it to people on chemotherapy and nobody's yeah. more nauseated than somebody on chemotherapy. Absolutely. Chemotherapy, opiate nausea, all sorts of different reasons we use it. Now. What if I said to you that one of the most common adverse drug effects of Ondansetron is nausea? I would believe you. Well, it's, it's perfectly because true. Because your canal, I would believe you. <laughs> so, in the product well, license... Like antiarrhythmics can cause arrhythmia. Absolutely. It's one of my favourite ever cardiology lessons. This is, is it. That, um, beta blockers can cause arrhythmia. That's it. All of these things can. So I'm blown. Ondansetron and all antiemetics as a side effect, as an adverse drug reaction, can cause nausea and vomiting. Now, why is this? That seems extremely counterintuitive. However, what I've just said to you about reporting adverse drug effects at face value is if Ondansetron is a brand new drug and you treat somebody with nausea and vomiting with Ondansetron and their nausea and vomiting gets worse, you might well report that on the yellow card as being an adverse drug effect to the drug itself, whereas actually... It might be that the bowel obstruction has got worse. Absolutely, and this is the key thing. So remember that adverse drug effects that are listed in the literature, they're reported. There's not necessarily causality until we fully research the causality of it. So another classic, really, really classic one that's been debated for years and years, suicidal tendency in SSRI. This is the other thing I remember from, um, so um, um, when I did psychiatry in fourth year at, uh, at Uni of Nottingham, um, we had an OSCE and a large part of that is obviously one of the scenarios that you might have is the we're starting you on a new medication. Yep. And so that's hence why, you know, sodium valprate, you mm-hmm. need to ask them, are you going to start about... Um, I used to going to start thinking about children. The other one is um, a granulocytosis. Yep. Uh, for clozapine. For clozapine, those, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 1%, everyone always remembers that. It's 1% mm-hmm. of patients get a granulocytosis. Which is high. That's really high. It's one of stats that your head. Um, it's funny what you remember, because it's always like, it's. Um, everyone always remembers scorpion venom for pancreatitis. Um, <laughs> But yeah, um, is yeah, we're going to start you on this SSRI, and actually, in the next couple of weeks after you start it, your suicide risk will go up mm-hmm. because we're losing. You're taking away that inhibition, and actually, you'll have this get up and go. And you might actually go, well, now I've got this motivation. I'm going to use it to hurt myself. Absolutely, which has always been the classic pharmacological type A ADR reaction explanation of why people that are started on SSRI might well have an adverse effect, which is suicidal ideation. But actually, if we look at the reporting of it, and you look at it very carefully, could it be that a person that's reached out to the point that their depression is so so badly affecting their life that they've reached out to a practitioner to start them on antidepressant therapy, so they've started on it, and just because of the situational time that they've been started on it, that actually that's when their highest risk period of suicide is. Because they are at rock bottom. Absolutely. 
and this is something that's been written about considerably, and there's a debate that still goes on now, okay. whether it's a pharmacological type A ADR or whether this is causality that's caused by, uh, that's not, not necessarily causally related to the drug itself, but the condition itself. So it's a really, really interesting thing to get into and look at the evidence. There's been millions of papers written on it, I'm sure. But the key thing I'd say is you always look at causality. If you've got the research to back up causality, that's fine. Diethylstilbestrolthalidomide, we have the hard primary evidence to tell us that these are causal relationships. The mechanisms by which we report these sometimes means that you don't always have causality. So, really important thing, I thought we'd touch on it, it felt natural to talk about it. No, that's absolutely perfect, I wanted to talk about it anyway, mm-hmm. and, and as I said, I'd, um, I'd recommend people go back to the uh, medication trial podcast as well, because we talk about um, phase zero, phase one, two, three, yeah. four, absolutely. and how important it is, and, and yeah, thalidomide's mentioned in that as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we've talked about delayed, we've now just had a touch on about how we report and, and, and some of the problems within that, so shall we now talk about E? E, so we're on type E, so again, one of the newer newer types of adverse drug reaction that we, we've started understanding. And E stands of end of dose, end of dose. So this is a situation where someone experiences an adverse drug effect immediately or somewhat immediately after the withdrawal of a drug. And that's the key word here, withdrawal of the drug. So this adverse drug reaction encompasses your Withdrawal, situ- withdrawal syndromes for particular drugs. And again, go back to our definition, an adverse or unwarranted effect of a therapeutically integrated drug at a, at a correct dose. And this can happen because of it, so it classifies as an adverse drug reaction. Now, we see this one relatively often in ED, but we'll talk about the situation of a illicit drug user or even a non-illicit drug user who's prescribed regular narcotic analgesia opiate therapy that stops their stops that treatment and then immediately develops unwellness sweats anxiety hyper hyper analgesia off the back of it now all these are related to the abrupt abrupt withdrawal of the opiate so in this case we've got a person that's used to opiates they're body is physiologically used and tolerant and dependent to a certain extent on the opiate and so they'll have a physiologically homeostatic response to that drug being withdrawn particularly if it's over a long period of time so again this typically was a reaction that was categorized as being an augmented previously because it was predictable but actually it doesn't fall under the specific criteria of that so in this case we've stopped the drug abruptly and we've caused an unwanted symptom off the back of it talk about another example so I did this actually just the other day and we had to be very careful about it we had a lady that came in bradycardic um, and symptomatically bradycardic because she was on um, a tenol on 100 milligram and she was in a bit of an AKI and she'd got a bit older and generally her drug handling of that tenol was poorer so myself and the HCOP elderly care physician at that point made a we did a full review of her medications and decided she doesn't need this beta blocker anymore we can't find risk benefit a reason that she needs this beta blocker anymore sure when you stop beta blockers abruptly in any kind of patients particularly high dose beta blockers the classic 
the symptom of that is they'll get a reflex tachycardia, a rebound tachycardia or a rebound hypertension off the back of it. So this is because their beta adrenal receptors have been completely antagonized over a massive period of time. You stop that antagonism and over a three to four day period, all that adrenaline is hitting those receptors and starting to make their heart beat fast and their blood vessels constrict, which is meaning their blood pressure is going up. So again, a predictable effect, but this is a withdrawal effect in this case. So a couple of classic examples. Another one is baclofen, a little bit more niche, but baclofen is a drug that can cause a very, very nasty rebound tachycardia because yeah. of the way its pharmacology works. So how do we manage this kind of a situation, these withdrawal type situations? Um, well, I mean, with my ED hat on and just thinking about when you say withdrawal I think about alcohol withdrawal I think about opiate withdrawal yep. symptomatic management essentially yep, um, would be my mainstay definitely so in the in the ED acute setting this is something that will get better over time so once their body reacclimatizes, they will be okay once they've gone cold turkey absolutely well yeah as you say <laughs> the problem is that there are unfortunate circumstances where they can become so sick because of this withdrawal that they require ongoing monitoring and they, they require quite intensive care just for the withdrawal symptoms. So in that case, it's pre, like we always say, it's all about preempting these adverse drug reactions. So in the case of these situations where we're, we may cause a withdrawal phenomenon, a delay, uh, sorry, not a delay, an end of dose phenomenon, we're tapering. We have to bring these people off these drugs gently to the point that they don't experience the withdrawal that makes them symptomatically unwell. So in this case, withdrawing opiates, we're actually not going to stop that opiate dead cold turkey. We're going to slowly taper them over time. In the case of the beta blocker, we're not going to stop it dead. We're going to taper it from 100 milligram of atenolol to 75 for a couple of weeks, for 50 for a couple of weeks, for 25 for a couple of weeks. And we're going to slowly, slowly reduce that over time to the point that they're not going to be, they might still experience some withdrawal, but that withdrawal isn't going to be significant enough for them to be becoming incredibly unwell. So it's a very, very tricky circumstance. This brings us to a particular group of drugs that nobody can really agree where they sit in in terms of adverse drug effects. And these are our glucocorticosteroids. Ah. So traditionally, people have placed glucocorticosteroids in a class C adverse drug reaction in terms of chronic effects, but also in type E as end of dose. So we know that a type C type reaction is a Cushing syndrome from taking from overuse of, of opiate of um, steroids over a long period of time. So that's moon face, that's hypertension, that's potentially roid rage. These sort of symptoms can be put under class C. When we get a situation where they've been abruptly withdrawn, that is a combination of class C and class E because it's a withdrawal phenomenon. So if we've got somebody that's been on 40 milligrams of prednisolone for 10 years and you stop it dead, I can guarantee you they are going to go into adrenal insufficiency. Addison's. Addison's. They're going to develop Addison's disease, a secondary Addison's disease, because they have no endogenous steroid production at that point. Now, that falls under the, the classification of type E, end of dose, because it is a withdrawal effect. But it also falls under type C, because it is a chronic effect of that, that drug. So they fall under both of them. But the management in this case falls in line with type 
E is you have to taper these off over a very, very potentially long period you, of time. You see these patients reducing it by, well, sometimes it's one milligram a week, but you know, five milligrams a week. So I'm on 40, then I'm on 35, yep. then I'm on 30, then Absolutely. I'm on 25. And we see this often, right? I think it's probably under-recognized, if anything, within emergency care. The people that are on maintenance steroids that become acutely unwell, so they have a acute presenting complaint of a sepsis, for example, but are on a maintenance steroid. Now, if me or Dr. Thomas had a sepsis, we've got a pretty damn good physiological response to try and cope with our infection. I'm glad you noticed. Uh, well, Dad, you're a, you're a robust man. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we, we went there. Uh, anyway, so a person that's on maintenance steroids is in their endogenous production of corticosteroids of, of um, cortisol within their body is suppressed they haven't got the immune response that a normal healthy person would have to, f to fight that infection and at that point we really have to consider giving them a maintenance steroid or increasing their dose of steroid or a rescue steroid at that point for them to help that help fight that infection because you need your, your cortisol or your glucocorticoids um, essentially potentiate the effect of adrenaline exactly so which is why so um why we, should, we don't give hydrocortisone to cause vasoconstriction it doesn't it's not the primary effect no, of it that's not the reason but it potentiates the effect of adrenaline therefore allows the uh, vasoconstriction which is why patients with addison's they vasodilate, they have this refractory hypotension. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So that's, yeah, vasoconstriction, not the problem. Your problem is the Addisonian type syndrome here. So our management of these patients who have withdrawal is tapering or titrating the withdrawal of their drugs in this case. And you can massively minimize the experience of a type E adverse drug reaction by tapering that drug over a longer period of time. So that even when we do come off it completely, the symptoms are manageable yes. and eventually they will get over it. So it's a really important and very subtle type of adverse uh, drug reaction there. So is this where, so say we've not tapered down our drug response, but say we've got a patient who, I don't know, is um, uh, says they have asthma, they're on the steroids normally, and they come to us uh, in A&E red flag sepsis, mm -hmm. and we've given them three, uh, three litres of fluid and their mm -hmm. blood pressure is still tanked. Yep. They're hyponatremic, they're hyperkalemic. Yep. Uh, um, you know, so we're thinking Addison's. Does that fall under this as a as a type E yeah, reaction? That would. So that, that does still that count, would. even though we're saying we've not. Re you know, you've taken it as normal, mm -hmm. but this isn't an augmented. We're thinking this is a type. This e. is an end of dose reaction. So there, we're st still going back to the original original definition: an unwarranted or noxious effect of a drug at a therapeutic concentration. This would not have happened if that person didn't take that drug for that amount of time, and this, this is happening because of it. So it falls within that type E ADR classification, but it also has some overlap with the type C. So this is where steroids are a little bit tricky. Um, type C, type E, it's that way. <laughs> Brilliant. So that was uh, type E, so that's end of dose. So um, finally then, to wrap this up, we're on to F. Yep, absolutely. So what does F stand for? So type F is the newest and the most probably most debated uh, whether you can call it an adverse drug effect so F stands for failure so failure is where you've prescribed a drug at a therapeutic dose and it's causing an unwarranted effect now 
what we said at the beginning of part one was that we can't class an adverse drug reaction at a, as, as an adverse drug reaction if it's a toxic effect, i.e. you've taken a higher than natural or normal dose of what you're supposed to be taking for that indication. And this would be where maybe we've given you too much gentamicin yeah. and your, your kidneys are now broken. Absolutely. So that's, we've given a, a high dose and it was an incorrectly high dose for whatever reason. We've done it as an error in healthcare professional. Somebody might have taken an overdose. That happens in that case. But we also mentioned therapeutic, therapeutic failure because of underdosing. So if you underdose someone, naturally, you're not going to get the required response. So an unwarranted or noxious effect can be failure to respond to that treatment okay. in this case. So when we talk about type F reactions, we talk about giving a drug at a therapeutic concentration, therapeutic dose that we'd expect to give us the response that we want, but it hasn't for whatever reason. Now, there's only really two examples that are commonly that commonly illustrate this. So one of them is both of our worst nightmares, which is contraception failure. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> You're a married man. I'm a, yeah, and still. <laughs> I don't really know what to say to that. <laughs> so we can have a situation where we give contraception at a therapeutic, logical dose, and it still causes failure. I.e. pregnancy. I.e. pregnancy, in this case, which is an unwarranted, ne not necessarily noxious, but an unwarranted side effect of the therapy that we're giving. I'm glad you don't consider it particularly noxious. Noxious wouldn't be fair, I don't think. So, in this case, we've got a situation where we've got treatment failure at a therapeutic dose, and that's the key thing. Treatment failure at a therapeutic dose. Now, our other classic example of that that people illustrate it with is you've got a patient who is septic, that comes into ED that is, all intents and purposes, a clear bacterial infection of whatever source it might be who is septic with it and is dying in front of you. And you give them a broad-spectrum antibiotic quite correctly. And that treatment fails and they die. So they might die anyway, to be fair, because they might have been that ill. But your antibiotic therapy has failed in this circumstance, whereas it might have... Mm been correct in another circumstance and in that case it's actually may well be caused by resistance of the bug that that person has got which you might not know about at you that might not point. know about at that point and that's still technically classed as a treatment failure as an adverse drug effect to that antibiotic now in this case and i don't want to go too deep into type F because it's a very there's still stuff being written about type F and we don't fully understand it. The two key parameters that you need to look at for type F are is there something going on with your patient that makes you think that th this therapeutic dose might be ineffective? So in this case let's talk about our contraception failure. Is this patient on a drug that may reduce the efficacy of the drug that you're giving them? Okay. So let's say contraceptive in a patient that's taking carbamazepine for epilepsy. We know carbamazepine, very powerful enzyme inducing agent, it, it reduces the efficiency of lots of other drugs. In that case, if you give someone a contraceptive who's taking carbamazepine, it's gonna potentially be ineffective and not give you the effect it needs. Yeah. That becomes a technical type F adverse drug reaction 
to the contraceptive because we've not considered that. The other classic one is a drug in patients of extremes of body weight. Patient comes in with, a sim with symptoms that scream at you they're having an acute pulmonary embolism. And you were going to get on to anticoagulation. We're going to yeah, get yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. We, well, we have always yeah, had yeah. to touch on it. Yeah. This patient has got awful pleuritic chest pain. They're cardiovascularly unstable. Their well score is through the sky. Weirdly, they're anticoagulated. They tell you, I take my Rivaroxaban 20 milligram once a day, religiously. I take it all the time. I'm anticoagulated. That's potentially going to reduce your likelihood of thinking this could be a PE, this could be something else, could be pneumothorax, could be whatever it might be. This patient is 175 kilos. Oh no. Absolutely. So at this point, can you guarantee or can you consider that that dose for that patient is actually providing them a therapeutic effect no. at that point? Exactly. So at this point... So I'm thinking to our guidelines at, at uh, NUH where I think it is 150 kilos is your cutoff. Absolutely. You stop doing the 1.5 and, and you start going from one so you mig. go 1 mig BD. That's right. Is 1 mig right? Yeah. BD because of the kinetic differences in people in extremes of body weight. Again, this technically would fall under a type F adverse drug effect, a treatment failure. So we're looking at, is there something about this patient that makes me think that prescribing this drug at this therapeutic dose is not going to be effective. And that is different from prescribing an underdose for a patient of, um, of a, norm, a, a normal adult patient in this case, or even a normal child patient. Yeah. So it's a slightly subtle difference, but you're always looking at, is there some drug delivery or some drug handling or something about this patient that makes me think that this therapeutic dose is going to be in effect. So does type F um, cover patients who are taking the right dose of warfarin, rivaroxaban or whatever, who develop a DVT-PE? Does that cover type F? It depends on the specific situation there because they, so quite often you can have people that are warfarinized or anticoagulated at a therapeutic, therapeutic level, but their underlying condition means that um, that's not effective. So technically you, technically you could call that a type F. So I'll give you an example. Rivaroxaban for a patient with a mechanical heart valve yep. and someone has a stroke. Mm. Technically you could argue that that patient has a predisposed condition. They've been prescribed a drug at a therapeutic level um, that hasn't worked. But also you could equally argue that that patient doesn't have an indication for that drug. So it's the wrong drug for that condition. Therefore, it's not an adverse drug effect. It's a, it's, it's a completely, it's, it's a red herring. We've, we're using the wrong drug for the wrong condition. Therefore, it would logically fail. So that's a difficult one to comment on <laughs> with my political howl. Fair enough. Okay. Um, anything else, Kamal? I think we've dominated that. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Um, so we've looked at, uh, over the course of these, this two-part, podcast we've looked at adverse drug reactions we've looked at the in the a to c in the first part so yep. augmented bizarre and chronic mm -hmm. and now in this podcast we looked at delayed um end of, uh, end of dose end of dose and we looked at failure absolutely so the, i guess the key messages here is just remember that 
all drugs that we prescribe, that we initiate, think of them as poisons, I always think. We're, we're always starting a poison. There's a, there's a risk and benefit for that poison. That poison might be doing a job that we want, and that poison has got the potential to cause a very nasty adverse consequence. And it's always weighing up the risk and benefit of initiating that drug. It's about ensuring we've got the appropriate follow-up for immediate, medium-term and long-term consequence of that, of that drug. And then making sure that patients are involved and they understand what they need to look out for is safety netting. So all of these things are considerations when you're prescribing drugs. And documenting, making sure you've clearly documented why have you started this drug? What's the logic that you've, that you've um, prescribed this drug? Because that means that somebody five or 10 or 15 years down the line understands the rationale for stopping it or discontinuing it or reducing the dose of it. That's the key thing that I want people to get out of this podcast. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Canal. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Um, so, yeah, once again, uh, we'll put the blog up at takeorally.com. Uh, remember, we are on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Please follow us. And the take visually for this podcast will be on uh, takeorally.com and also on Instagram. So you can find us there. Uh, remember, you can subscribe at uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. So please find us and subscribe. And, um, and uh, absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Canal. Brilliant. It's been a pleasure.